0: Hello and welcome to Fireside with the VC. My name is Andrew Romans. And today we're going to take a deep dive on legal issues with legendary lawyer Roger Royce from Silicon Valley, who I've known for decades. Roger, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Andrew. Um, I especially like that introduction. It's not often I get called legendary, so...
0: Well, no, it's true. In fact... um, If you think about how many deals can an entrepreneur, even a Jack Dorsey, fit into his career with his limited non-vampire lifespan, and it's what, five, six companies he can do in his whole life? And then you think, how many do VCs see? And I think a VC doing 300 deals a year doesn't necessarily know what's going on with every one of those deals. But then there's how many deals uh, do lawyers like you that are really here. How long have you been in the Silicon Valley, Roger?
1: I, I moved out here in 1991, and um, you know, thanks for for mentioning that. Uh, you're one of, the, I think, you're the only person who's kind of picked up on that. You know, how many deals we actually see. And I started out as a tax lawyer, so I was um, in everybody's deals. I was in you know, law firms of 30 to 50 lawyers, and every deal they'd bring me in. And of course, I'd have to understand everything that's going on to advise on my mo- one little thing. But because of that, you know, I, I probably had the bird's eye view, the best sense of anybody in the firm as to what was market, because I'd see what everyone was doing. And, and that's actually pretty valuable just to have the experience, because, as you know, um, you know, startup lawyers are a dime a dozen in, in Silicon Valley. And, you know, a lot of lo- a lot of good, there's a lot of very good lawyers here that can do very good documents. The real value in having a lawyer is somebody who can keep you on market. Um, and that just requires you to have your finger on the pulse all day, every day.
0: Uh, well, I agree. I think, um, you know I like to say, hire the lawyer you need, not the law firm you don't. And when lawyers are presenting themselves, um, you think, listen, I'm sure Harvard trained you as well as Harvard trained the other guy and uh, your legal skills are there. But can you, do you have a contact network that can help us now, later, when things are good or things are bad? And the deal experience is really gives a certain knowledge. I think that i I went through the founders club as you 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 were supportive of an investor in, and I looked at the cap table of literally every company that did a series A of five million or more on what used to be venture source before Crunchbase and would examine that and then speak to every single founder and just by seeing how many financings the company does and the size of the financings, who's the players, that data starts to give a certain understanding, you know, of what's happening. So I have an immense value for that experience, but I want to go through as quick as we can, what are the legal documents you need, what are the inside secrets people should pay attention to, what are, you know, mistakes to avoid starting from company formation, you know, docs you need and what you should be paying all the way through to Raising first angel rounds? Are we on notes? Are we doing priced rounds, you know, with equity? And then through some of the VC stages and, and all the way to MA, and sec- or secondaries, m a IPO, and even bankruptcies. Uh, so I know that sounds like a lot, but, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about these things, um, you know, one at a time. Um, so why don't we start at the beginning? Um, with company formation, I know as an entrepreneur myself that went through the whole, the whole process, I remember a lawyer from Pillsbury Madison Sutro, PMS, now Pillsbury, saying to me, Andrew, here's your employment contract. And I said, what are you talking about? I'm the founder. I don't need a contract. And you do, right? So what are the core documents founders that are about to found a company in the middle of this pandemic need to get started? And, and how should they think about that?
1: Yeah, thank, thank you. So as you know, I haven't written as many books as you, but I did write one called Dead on Arrival, How to Avoid the Legal Mistakes That Could Kill Your Startup. And I kind of walked through it kind of the way you are thinking about it. We start with the, the first fundamental issue, you know, choice of entity. So you got an employment contract because you formed a corporation and corporations can only act through their agents and employees. Um, and that is sort of the standard in Silicon Valley. It's sort of the knee-jerk go to default reaction. It is not necessarily the best solution. Most of the time it is, but um, I will tell you that a little bit of thought needs to go into that decision. And uh, it's a little less thought than, than we used to have to put into it since the last tax act in 2017, because the corporate tax rate has gone way down to 21%. So they're even more attractive now than they were. But it was never about taxes. It was all, always about what happens down the road. Because I know, Andrew, your fund is probably not going to invest in an LLC and you can't invest in an S-corp, so you're going to want a C-corp, right? And you're going to want it- to And be by the way, let's
0: just make sure people heard that loud and clear. Um, an LLC is what we have as a venture capitalist so that it's tax flow through and everyone gets their K-1s, that works. But if we invest into an LLC, all of a sudden I've got a deal with their, you know, their K-1s coming to me for my tax returns. It's just not going to happen, right? It's just generally not going to happen. So Delaware C Corp is what investors like.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I do enough fund formation that I can tell you that you'll you'll have a lot of unhappy LPs, you know, your your uh, tax exempts and foreigners, if all of a sudden they got to start filing U.S. tax returns, which is what would happen if you invest in LLCs. So you're going to look for C Corps or or have the LLC convert into a C Corp. Now. Um, I'm a little bit of a contrarian on a lot of issues that cross over to like I say my core competency attacks and this is one of them I think this requires some thought and uh, whereas a lot of lawyers in the valley will just say you're a c-corp you know end of story next question uh, I'm going to ask you a couple questions I'm going to say I'm going to tell you about three different kinds of companies I'm going to ask you to tell me which one you are okay uh, are you Number one, are you that yogurt shop down on the corner that's going to make a hundred thousand a year or so per owner, and you're never going to scale, you're never going to take venture, you're never really going to take outside financing? You'll have a nice business for your family. Um, uh, if, if that's you, then you probably don't want to be a C corp. You know, you probably want to be an S corp or an LLC or something else. It just doesn't, you know tax wise and I could tell you stories about serial entrepreneurs that I have that have built up enterprise software consulting businesses over and over or something like that over and over and over again and then sold them in fact I had one guy uh, after 20 years we did this probably six times I just sat down and did a calculation as to how much tax he paid over the years staying as a pass-through because he never needed financing uh, and it was a large number it was a big big number so he did the right thing so that's one side uh, on the other side, are the kind of companies you look at, Andrew, you know, they're going to go big or go home, right? They're going to have to get money. They're going to have to get into the market. They're going to have to scale. You know, you want them to be a humongous success, you know, or, 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 you know, or you're not too interested. That's what they're going for. You might as well start as a C-Corp because you're going to need to take financing. You're going to need to have, be able to give equity to all your employees. You know, you need to use it as currency, all that stuff. So, okay, you're clearly a C-corp. Then there's that messy middle. And that's what I hear most often. And people say, well, I'm not sure. I got a business. I could get profitable, you know, and I could have a lifestyle, but I could scale and I might attract investors. I just don't know. And um, so I'm a little different than a lot of lawyers. I'll say, well, let's stop and talk about an LLC because maybe, you know, I can give you a solution that will let you delay that decision. Um, it's going to cost you a little more because now you got two entities, the LLC and the corporation, when you eventually incorporate. But but we can slow that down if you really need to. If you haven't figured out who you are yet, you know you're, you're a teenager still in company talk. Uh, we'll help you with that. Uh, so once in a while I will do an LLC, probably more than other folks. But we all know that's an interim solution. If you know if you're going to be a big scalable uh, venture-backed company.
0: And what about, uh, how hard is it to go from being an LLC to a C-Corp?
1: Um, it's, it's super easy as a corporate matter, because you file a, you know, your, your merger documents or your conversion documents, depending on if you're crossing states. Uh, but you file your documents with the Secretary of State, and poof, you're an LLC. If you've got, the more constituents you have, though, the more difficult, well, two things the more like shareholders and optionees and people like that, the more difficulty gets because you have to account for all those folks and give them stock in exchange for whatever they have in your LLC, which could be quite creative. And there's no um, tax
0: event. There's no tax event in doing that.
1: The, well, there's a simple answer and there's a long conference. Okay, <laughs>
0: We'll do our, a podcast on that. We can talk about flips from Europe or something like that, but we, I want to dive through some other materials. So, Tell, yeah, I think you came up with the total startup solution. And so I think that's your, you know, these are the five, these are the eight docs you need. This is how you're going to pay for it or not pay for it or pay for it later. What, what, tell us what that is.
1: Oh, we've gone way beyond that since then. Okay, but, sorry.
0: Uh, my, my research is old
1: yeah it's uh no your research was pretty good i I saw the bio you forgot to mention i'm in the north dakota high school wrestling hall of fame but other than that you know you got my bio pretty well
0: okay never mess with a lawyer okay Uh,
1: so the the, yeah so so yeah there there are some essential documents um but but what i find you know when founders startup founders come here to silicon valley and they they tend to come from around the world i don't know if you see that in your experience but everybody wants to be here eventually for the markets for the money for the talent Um, Of course, they need a lawyer and they need kind of a basic structure. And the number one mistake that I've seen everywhere I've practiced um, and and in every industry is that people, they they delay too long and they don't document. And it's surprising how little documentation you actually need to have legal significance. Uh, Now, it's not as bad as it was because there are a lot of online incorporation tools that will do this dirt cheap. Um, Usually they get it wrong, or sometimes they get it wrong, but at least they get something in place. And at least we can get some of this, you know, covered, like the equity split, right? You want to get that nailed down as soon as possible. You want to get an entity formed as soon as possible um, in order that you can start collecting intellectual property inside the entity and you can start dividing up the equity, uh, uh, et cetera, hiring people, entering into contracts, uh, entering into agreements. So, so there is that kind of basic set of, 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 documents. It's, um, formation documents. Now the trouble, the problem. So, so i, I got mixed feelings. I, I like the online incorporator tools like the one we've created because it, it gives cash starved startups a way to kind of just get that out of the way quickly and get back to, you know, writing code for whatever it is that they do. Um, so I like that part about it because in the old days they just wouldn't have done anything. And, you know, that could have ended up being a disaster. Uh, The flip side is that there's so many opportunities. You don't know what you don't know, and there's so many opportunities to get it wrong. So I don't mind the online incorporation tool, but beyond that, I think you need a lawyer. I think you need a lawyer to issue stock. Uh, I think you need a lawyer to do contracts. Um, That employment agreement, as long as it's at will, I'm not too concerned about it, but once you start getting fancy at all, you know, God, we're in California, talk about Byzantine employment laws. So it's a a little bit of a mixed bag. We have not fully automated the legal process yet. Let me put it that way.
0: Okay. And um, maybe talk about uh, convertible notes for a minute. Typically when we see really early stage startups raising money from friends and family um, or from angels or institutional seed VC investors, um, you tend to see a lot of convertible notes. And you've got, kind of the Dave McClure KISS note, keep it simple, and then you've got the wide Combinator safe note. Um, what, what, What should entrepreneurs know about convertible notes? And I also am interested in getting into details in a minute about there's the founder perspective, there's the very early investor perspective, and there's even the later stage investor perspective.
1: Yeah, well, you know, here in Silicon Valley, they've been pretty much displaced by safe notes. You know, there's some industries are a little more promissory notes, but by safes and, and to kind of give you that you got to know a little bit about the history about this to know how we got to where we are. And back in the old days when I started, the idea was that um, the investor would come in, but they didn't have enough money to justify a preferred stock financing. You know, that's going to be hundreds of pages of documents and uh, you got to negotiate all these provisions. And um So somebody got the idea, well, I'll tell you what, um, it's too early to value this company anyway. Uh, How about we give you a promissory note because we didn't have any other type of instrument to to recognize uh, a contribution to a company. So we're gonna pretend that it's debt, even though you're taking equity risk and you're looking for equity return, we're gonna pretend that it's debt so we don't have to go through 100 pages of legal documents. You don't have to pay me a lot of money to do that because a promissory note is pretty simple. We'll add a conversion feature to it. So when you actually do go talk to a, a, a real VC who can actually value the company, because you can't—you're just an angel—you um, can convert that promissory note into equity, and you get in. At, you know, you can take along on all those great terms that the VC negotiated. And because you got in early, we're going to give you a discount. You know, you, you were first. You saw the future. You get twenty percent off the, the conversion price down the road. Um, and that worked fine. Uh, there were a couple little wrinkles to it. Number one, notes have to bear interest, you know, and, you know and, and the investor doesn't want interest return and the company sure as heck can't, you know, can't pay it. Um, they have to be repaid, they have to have a term and because of the California finance law, uh, banking laws, they were usually pretty short term. Um, that might have been a little bit of over overlawyering if you ask me, but every once in a while, people would call me on that and say, oh, that's too many notes or you've done that too many times, you've got to get a lending license. So we kept them short term, you know, because we had to fit within an exemption from the finance law. Um, So they had wrinkles and and you know what, those notes never got repaid, never. I mean, the only time they got repaid is um, if the company did a financing and something changed with regard to the investor, they lost faith in the founder. I had one where the company didn't like the new investor and they said, oh, I'm not going to partner with that guy. <laughs> you know, but rarely did they get repaid. Usually they I've just-
0: seen a lot of experience. I got a lot of experience in this too, you know, yeah. Roger. And uh, one time, you know, you, you don't brag about this as a VC, but I'll be honest about it. You know, you invest in a, in a startup via note alongside big boy VCs and it's got a discount rate of 20%. It'll convert at either... 20% discount which could change that number but 20 is common the right one to the pre money valuation of the next financing or um, it'll convert at the cap. So it, you know you're investing in a company that's probably worth 5 million if we were doing equity you say there's a cap of 5 million or 20%. So if they raise money at a valuation below 5 million I get 20% lower than that valuation so I get the discount but if it um, raises money above $5 million, say $100 million, my debt converts to equity at a cap of $5 million. Sometimes there's a lot of ambition around uh, financing and things go badly wrong. So things get worse and the company gets sold for less than the cap. And so you end up getting your principal and interest back, which depending on how long you're in it, you know, means something. And that's not the home run that returns a fund, but it's more common than I might have thought.
1: Yeah, and and, and that's why when I represent investors, uh, I'll tell them, you know, you're better off with a note uh, because in fact, there's there's cases out there where a company, t- well, let me just kind of finish and I'll tell you the difference. Okay, sorry. But, but you're absolutely right about that. You know, the note does have to be repaid. So if you're an investor, you're not looking for that. That's not what you're hoping for, but you do have downside protection. And if the company's a little bit uh, troubled, um, sometimes we'll secure that note. And I've had cases where the investor walked away with the company, you know, because the company couldn't pay the note and uh, they just foreclosed under security and they ended up with all the assets. Well, the founders, of course, that's a disaster for them. They're not looking for that result. They're looking for equity investors, but we couldn't do it that way. Now the cap is interesting. So that cap came along, um, I don't know, maybe 12, 10, 12 years ago, we start talking about caps, maybe sooner.
0: Yeah, which, which by the way, can I jump in and say very interestingly, is that the first time I raised angel funding for, I was an entrepreneur and it was Keith Mendelssohn from Pillsbury Madison Sutro who gave us this promissory note. And I think that those prom notes were originally drafted by smart people to deal with bridge financing, like yeah. a bridge loan. So exactly. if you really read the document, you can tell, This whole thing is not about entrepreneur trying to be the next Bill Gates, Steve Jobs. This is about some legal company that's about to get paid on selling a spaceship or something or they're about to get acquired or they're about to close financing. And this promissory note just is supposed to get you far enough with funding to that new transaction. And, and they were uncapped. So there's no cap in it because nobody was even thinking about that. So to raise money on an, to invest on an uncapped note, you know, now Ron Conway used to do it, but stopped. It's just insanity. You know, you're trying to help the company. And so Lady Gaga invests on an uncapped note, tweets about it. She's got more followers than Obama. And all of a sudden you get a million downloads and she converts at a hundred million dollar valuation because there was no cap. So no cap was crazy, but I look back and my good angels invested on an uncapped note because it was a bridge document.
1: It was a bridge document. Exactly right. In fact, we still sometimes call them bridge notes. That's a fossil because that was when you're know you you're between series A and series B, and it's kind of a big deal to do a preferred stock financing. you got to have a closing, you got to own a set of documents. The company needs money now. So your A investors, they put a little bit of money in to bridge you to B, And uh, they would just convert that money into stock in the next round. And then you're right. And somebody got the idea, well, let's just use that for founders before they even do an A round. And we'll just use these old bridge notes we've been using. And you're right. You're exactly right. But then everybody, every lawyer in a valley made this mistake once. We did that with a founder, and you had that company that just took off. And they got in when the company is worth a million dollars and it converted when it was worth a hundred million dollars. The investor said, wait a minute, you use my money to build all this value and you're going to give me...
0: Or or maybe it wasn't just your money. You invested and you're like the Lady Gaga that tweeted that brought (laughs) them their first Skype million downloads and it all took off from there like Facebook. So you don't want to damage your economic position by adding value. And you don't want to disincentivize your investors either.
1: And it was disincentivizing. I recall a case, believe it or not, I mean, it set up these weird dynamics where one of the early investors was lobbying for a lower valuation in the next round. This is the company he invested in. And he was like, gee, Mr. Investor, you don't want to value it that high. It's not worth that. You know, don't do it because that would have diluted him further. So you really needed the cap. Um, and eventually we all figured that out. So cap showed up in, in all of these documents. Well, let's think about what we've got. We've got a convertible note that, like, other than when the company, you know, hits a single, like you say, you know, is not intended to be repaid. It's supposed to become equity. It's equity risk. It's equity return. Let's just get rid of this troublesome interest and this repayment obligation, and call it what it is. I mean, it's convertible equity, and, that, and that's where the safe came along. Now, um, yeah, uh, you know, McClure gave it a cute name, you know, the kiss, and somebody else gave it another cute name, the safe, but. You know, I've been doing this for 30 years. I mean, I've been doing warrants and and exotic. When I practice in New York City, you know, we came up with stuff like this all the time. We just didn't have good PR departments that could call it a safe and make every founder (laughs) in the valley use it. So it's not that new as a concept. It's just new in its adoption, especially since Y Combinator came up with their form that everybody wants to use. Um, So the safe now, it's it's, a... Okay, Mr. I'm the, I'm the founder. Mr. Investor, you give me your hundred thousand dollars today, and kind of like member Popeye and Wimpy, you know, I will you give me a dollar today for a hamburger, and I will gladly repay you on Tuesday. Right. I will gladly give you stock on Tuesday when I do a financing, and you're going to get a discount and you're going to get a cap, and we'll give you a side letter with some investor rights and all of that stuff. So that's where we are now, and that's
0: So, just, so the key just, thing there is no maturity date yeah. on when it's got to be repaid. And then you got to chase a hundred little angels around that you took in during demo day or something and get them to sign to extend the maturity date on the note. That, yeah. you know, that, that was taking up founders time. They're obviously not doing great if they haven't, you know, raised the next big round to trigger conversion. And so that was, that was a little bit, that was a positive development on the safe, if you ask me.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's a it's a beautiful thing in a way because it's just so easy. You don't have to like with a with a preferred stock financing, you got to do a close at a price. And so when that price changes, then you got to do another close. What well, with space, um, you know, you, you just sell them as they come at different caps, you know, and in different terms. They can be pre money, they can be post money. You can know do that yep. later if you want. But yeah, you don't have to do closings. It's just like notes. You can just sell them as they come along. The trouble is, they're just too easy they're too easy and uh, founders are now going online. And, and as you know, you know Y Combinator changed the terms of their safe uh, just overnight. Uh, so a lot of founders were signing documents they didn't understand uh, that they thought had different terms um, and um, you know, it, it, they're lawyerless deals and lawyerless deals are much easier to do these days. It's not a problem until it's a problem until you get into your cap table and you see the mistakes that you've made. So let me tell you the, the one big thing with the safes, the one big, big problem, um, um, especially, and I like pre-money safes, but the biggest problem with those is that you don't really know what you've given away. You know, yeah. you can just keep selling these things.
0: So both, so the investor doesn't know what he's got and the, the entrepreneur doesn't know what she's got. That's a problem. And people get upset when you say, hey, I invested at a cap of 15. Some lawyer is telling me the denominator kept getting bigger. And I'm converting at thirty.
1: Exactly. I don't That's
0: feel it. good about that. Where's my fifty X now?
1: Yeah. yeah, You got it. Uh, and then from the founder standpoint, the problem is is they don't do math very well. Now, um, you really need to project and figure out kind of where you're going to end up in a bunch of what if scenarios. And if you don't, and I've had this happen over and over again, where the founder does a million saves, they finally get to a financing, and it's like, oh. God, I gave a lot of my company away on safes and I'm giving money to the Series A. There's not a lot left for me, the founder. And I've had investors walk away from deals. They say, you gave too much to this company away. There's not enough common stock right. there. Too much the dead
0: weight there. in the cap table to yeah, attract we, and retain talent and go through the next 10 financings. That's
1: right. that's right. We got to recap this and or we're not going to invest. And I've had that happen more than once. So kind of my thing is, yes, use the safe. It's cheap. It's simple. It's easy. But let's be smart about this and try to understand, you know, you know, do some pro formas. Now, you're not going to like this, Andrew. But, you know, I, I say one way to protect yourself is by having a pretty high cap. And I know I say that, then the investors come back and they say, well, good luck with that, because I'm not going <laughs> to agree
0: to that. Well, That's not making the uh, investment opportunity attractive to a wide enough set that you're in a position to choose the investor that's going to add the most value. You're ending up with like the dumbest money that was not Valuation sensitive, who's unlikely to know you, Roger, and be able to introduce the startup to the guys that can help them. You know, is the concern with that. But, but I guess uh they, you know, if you're if you're dilution sensitive,
1: you yeah. know,
0: uncapped notes are. I mean, I, a very high cap note, Roger, is an uncapped note. But, you know that—that's what I say to people, at least.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a good way of looking at it. The, the way I look at it is that the cap is not supposed to be a proxy for valuation. It's just remember the original idea is to, it's to protect you from these runaway valuations, right?
0: Right. So um, I think that the convertible note is not meant to be debt. It's meant to be a proxy for an expensive um, financing. And if you're going through continuous financing, like you're raising money three days, three times a week at an early stage from different people that you're networking to. Um, the note is really easy. You've got one in your back pocket. You can change the cap, the interest rate, the discount, and just take cash in efficiently. But it is meant to be an equity financing. And I think these days, the idea that the early stage investor doesn't have the skill set of benchmark to value it, that's gone away. The, you know, many years ago with my first angel financing, which I now realize was a horrific uncapped note, they, they didn't know how to value it and I didn't feel like I knew how to value it. So the convertible note was fine. These days, investors wanna agree on a valuation and say, here's the money, how much do I get for it? And how much are you willing to part for it? But you don't have things like preferred investor rights. So when you do an equity financing as an angel or VC and you're wiring money to the company, you typically get preferred shares. You know, know, you've got these UK government tax things that'll make everybody common or ords, but you want preferred shares. And so one of the key things in an investor does in the Valley and a lot of places is you invest in a bunch of companies and time you try to help them all. And when some of them do really well and, and take off, you double down and write a bigger check into your Twitter. And then and so you double down on your winners. Now, the Valley is a rough place. I find New York very gentle by comparison where these big VCs come in and say, thank you, Andrew, for bringing me this deal. You know, thank you, Jason Calacanis for bringing me this deal. I'm taking the whole round. My fund is too big. I have a minimum ownership percentage of 20%, nothing for you. And you say, Hey, you know, nice guys at Kleiner, you want me to keep bringing you a deal? They go, I don't even care. I'm doing it all right now. I'll take 20% now. Now, if you invest in a note, there is no pro rata, into the next financing because it's still debt that hasn't converted and acquired preferred shareholder rights. So what tends what's happened to me a couple of times is sometimes we invest early and the guy's got a safe. If you asked them to make it priced round, you're not going to get into that financing. And then they do another note on the next financing, and I didn't, they didn't have a legal obligation to let me participate in the next funding round. They're just running around with notes in their back pockets. And then when, when the round happens, that's maybe the round you really wanna be in, like benchmark series A, you haven't converted yet. So you don't have a pro rata until the series B, which if you're investing in the B round after benchmark, that might not be the 100X return round you are seeking. Have you, do you understand this problem?
1: Yeah, I do. Absolutely.
0: And, 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 and have, are, have you been, are there side letter agreements that are getting, that, are we developing the bridge financing instrument yeah. to do what we want?
1: I, I think so. I mean, it, it, it now we have that problem. Exactly what you said is, you know, investors kind of figured that out. And uh, I'm seeing side letters now because the, uh, because the way the safe used to work is that you would get a pro rata right after you got stock in the next round. So it's not in the next, it's like if, two if rounds. If the
0: next round is preferred. Yeah. I've seen $15 million note rounds for a company that's trying to save on legal.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I've done those. Um, right. But <laughs> but, but, now the, uh, but now the side letters are, are, you know, are giving the safe holders uh, pro rata rights. And, you know, giving that. in a post money safe, you can do that, by the way. You can kind of figure out what your pro rate is. So you couldn't even do that in a pre-money save because you didn't know what percentage you're gonna end up with. So yeah, that's uh investors are getting smart and that's becoming that's becoming the standard.
0: And Roger, when um one of the issues I've had too on investing early is that sometimes there's no board of directors. Um the the or or the board of directors is the three founders you know, when does it make sense for a startup to begin to add investors to the board of directors, in your opinion, you know, for, for that matter, what do you see?
1: Well, yeah, the worst one is when you've got two founders and you've got a two member board. <clears throat> it's just a disaster waiting to happen. I see that all the time. You get deadlocked board and you, you can't do anything. So I, I really want to see either one person, you know, or three, an odd number. One to add investors. I mean, I you, you might have a, I mean, I think the market's changing because there's so much money that's coming in under these safes and convertibles now. Uh, but, but, you know, this, traditionally we added an investor when we did our preferred A round. Right. That's when we'd increase the size of the board or somebody would come off and we'd have our three member, you know, board at, at series A. Sometimes we'd go to five. Um, I, but now that you say that I am seeing outside board members a lot earlier in companies now, because people are putting real money into these companies on on convertibles.
0: Right, right, right.
1: Uh, And it's something to think about. You know, it's something that, again, a lot of thought has to go into this as to what's going to happen with control of the company as you go forward.
0: Right. And this is what I I wanted to get into before we talk about which terms to fight for, which ones not to, and what standard, is um, when do you drop the ESOP into the cap table? So something that, everyone learns that's active is that um, if there's an employee stock option plan, the ESOP, um, and that gets dropped in after you invested, you actually invested at a higher valuation than you thought you did, you know? Yeah. And, and that's a legal thing too, ESOP. I mean, it's probably faster and easier and more part of your total startup solution package, but what, what's the right time on that?
1: Yeah. So these days the stock, stock option plan is getting put in place when you do your, your first financing, when the company has money to pay for evaluation, Now, back in the good old days, um, that was just part of the incorporation package. When I first started here in the Valley, um, you would have stock options, companies would be given out equity as currency, you know, right away, right from the get-go. <clears throat> um, then uh, then uh, Congress got involved, of course, and they saw, because this Valley was really built on equity compensation, I think. And Congress got involved and, and uh, you know, the, you know, the Valley had too sweet a deal for too long. So now options have to be priced at fair market value. And um, so that requires evaluation. that costs money. Early stage startups, they don't and have You money need to pay
0: to, somebody to do the 409A. Like 409A valuation has got to right. be done.
1: Right. They need to pay for the 409A valuation in startups. If they have money, they don't like to spend it. So uh, instead, so we started doing two things. One was we would just issue stock to early stage founders. There's some tax issues around that. Uh, Plus you got them on your cap table now and they can vote. And then secondly, or we could just say, look, Mr. Service Provider, I'm going to make a promise to give you an option when we get an option plan. We can't really afford one right now. So just, just take this promise that when we get financed, and you know what, if we don't get financing, the option's not worth anything anyway. So, yeah, but know, the strike to... price,
0: the strike price of your option or warrants is material. You know, if I, could, if I can buy ten percent of the company at a penny a share, which means fifty bucks, that's different than I cashlessly exercise my options at the time the company is acquired. And the only four oh nine A that was done for me to, you know, my strike price of my right to buy shares. Is now just eaten up twenty percent of my exit. Very Here true. Goes your house in
1: Tahoe. <laughs> Very true. Uh, and the smarter uh, service providers will say, No, I'll take the stock and I'll take my chances, you know, on the tax stuff. Uh, but for exact for that exact reason, because they know that by definition, when you get financed, val- your value now your valuation is going to be higher. Your prospects are a lot better. So you're going to lose the spread between the value today and the value when the option plan gets put in place. So yeah, absolutely. The, the, now the legal issue with that is two things. Now you've got stockholders on your cap table, um, which is not as big a deal as it used to be because we've got really cool tools now online that can help with that. Um, but you do have a securities law issue because especially if you're here in California, because California does have a sophistication requirement to granting stock and it's a relatively low bar. Um, I can count on one hand the number of you know, shareholders I've in my career that I said, you don't meet this sophistication requirement. You can't have stock in your company. Um, but it still is there. And it's one more thing to think about. Plus, you've, now you've got a bunch of unaccredited invest, you know, shareholders on your cap table. That may come back to haunt you down the road um, in the merger and acquisition phase. So there are things to think about there. But all in all, if you're a smart service provider, you want stock. If you're a, you know, if you're the company you want to keep it easy and do options
0: okay before we move into series a um are convertible notes now being just abusively overused in the venture capital community where you see a 15 million dollar financing that should be a priced round being used as notes
1: well yeah sometimes um because um for, for all the reasons that we've just talked about um and because they do complicate your cap table the it, because the problem is because of the caps you're going to have different caps on different notes and then plus some are going to be pre-money some are going to be post-money because different people want different things at different levels of sophistication you're going to have a bunch of side letters all over the place and um in fact it's funny you should say that i was just thinking today that i should take another course in excel because um you know it's <laughs> You know, it can be a nightmare to try to figure out. I had a guy who worked for me who was an actuary, and uh, that's the reason he worked for me. I needed an actuary to figure out some of these cap tables, you know, with all these different terms. So so that's that's a problem. And, you know, uh, a while back, maybe it was five or ten years ago, you saw this thing called series seed. And the idea was, well, let's just make series A preferred stuff, or the first round of preferred to be really super simple. You know, we we'll get rid of, like, um, Registration rights, which nobody ever exercises anyway, you know, we'll just water it way down It'll be 1x non-participating be just super simple and we'll keep the cost down and people won't you know They won't go out and do these complicated convertibles and derivatives Um, I think the safes and the promissory the convertible notes have pretty much won that battle Um, it was a it was a I mean I still do series seed rounds from time to time, but It's just it's too easy. It's Like I said, it's too easy.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there's a few, you know, pre-seed funds that demand a price round and they've got their own cookie cutter that that I see, that that I know do it. Um, If you want to be competitive and get into deals that are oversubscribed, you better just go along with the crowd on, um, you know, these maybe less, more founder friendly, less investor friendly deals. So I want to talk about um, what are the key terms in a term sheet on a Series A priced equity financing, not these notes. And even start with, um, explain what um, participating preferred and non-participating preferred means for our listeners who haven't been through it. And then tell us which one you like.
1: Okay, I'm, I'm going to put a little bit of a different spin on this for your listeners and what you've been hearing so far, because I know you do a lot of these interviews. And uh, you can find out what correct terms are pretty easily out there. But I've spent the last month or two going back to my um, 2001 documents, in my 1998 and my, my 2008 documents, because I think we're heading into a very special period now, <laughs> um, in terms of terms, and uh, and I'd forgotten just how draconian uh, we used to be way back then, and I think um, companies ought to pre- be prepared for what's about to come, because they're going to see terms that are going to be very surprising. So let's let's start let's start with um, with participation. So sort of all the deals, the preferred stock deals that, that we've been doing uh, recently were, were really just, just 1x non-participating. You know, you just get in, you, you put your, and, and convertible stock, convertible non-participating preferred stock. So the idea is if I put my $100 into your company and I get this non-participating convertible preferred, um, when you sell the company, I'm going to get either the great, I'm going to get the greater of my $100 back or my pro rata percentage. That's it. That's non-participating um participating means that you get both in fact you double dip right you get your money back plus you get a percentage of the company and um like i say looking at the old documents i saw a lot of participating preferred and oftentimes we'd have a cap so well you participate but only up to like five times your investment or something which is a really high cap by the way it'd be like till two times or something like that now, part of it's because the market was different. You know, 20 years ago, you didn't see people starting companies with $50,000 and scaling and actually being a legitimate contender for venture financing. 20 years ago, you know, people had to have a lot of money to, to start a company. It's just different then. So, you know, you, you just expect it to see different sorts of terms. But I think a lot of it had to do with the economy. So I think number one, one of the things you're going to see in 2020, you know, it's going to be the year of, of of fires in Australia and pandemics and sheltering and civil unrest and the return of participating (laughs) preferred, you know, with either uncapped or very high caps because companies are, are, they're going to need money and they're going to have to, you know, they're going to have to give up on some stuff.
0: So, um, you know, the other big thing to pay attention of course is governance and, you know, control your board and things like that. But what are the other key terms entrepreneurs should pay attention to?
1: Yeah. So it's not all about valuation. Just keep that in mind. Um, That's the first thing people think about. Um, But, um, you know, you have to look at, you got to read the fine print Um, because like the participation uh, rights, you know, that could gut your valuation pretty quickly. The other terms, uh, in this valley, you you don't see cumulative dividends. Uh, You know, their dividends get paid when, as if, and you know, declared in other parts of the country. And in private equity deals, you do see cumulative dividends if if the economics uh, make sense.
0: And can I just say, to explain what that is, so if if, uh, somebody invests a million dollars, or let's say if somebody invests $100 for simple math, and there's a dividend of 8%, that doesn't mean that you're going to be, getting paid an 8% coupon, getting eight bucks a year. That means that that $100 at the time of liquidation will be the $100 plus compound interest of 8% on the maybe 20 million they invested. And the entrepreneur thinks he owns this much of the company. And 18 years later, when Google buys it, he's like, holy cow, that, that dividend meant that the amount of equity the uh, investor had was a lot more. Isn't that right? It, it's, it's yeah, it like really adds up. It's the other side of the glass from an interest rate on a on a convertible note in a way.
1: Yeah, that's right. And it can really add up. Like I say in a valley, people, you know, you, you just don't see that in venture deals. Um, you know, we used to do redemption rights, um, and I think that's going to come back.
0: <laughs> yeah, and so we- the first time I had redemption on my first $15 million funding round when I was an entrepreneur, and I couldn't believe my eyes. And I said, so let me repeat this back to you. You're telling me at any minute, you can demand your money back, right? I mean, can you explain what redemption is?
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. And uh, the way it used to be set up when we used to do this is that the, you know the, the investor would say, well, look, I need to exit this company within a certain period of time. Maybe I'm halfway through the life of my fund or whatever. So starting is usually four years, four years from now, I'm going to come and I'm going to make a demand and you have to pay me my money back. Now, the way that would work in practice, what that really meant is that if the company was doing well, the investor would not make that demand. They'd want to ride it out until the exit. If The company's not doing well. That was a way for the investor to force the company to sell because they don't have the money to repay the redemption, right? So if they exercise the right to become a creditor, they can basically take the company. But yeah, it's the right of the investor to have his stock redeemed or repurchased by the company. Uh, I, I think that's a troubled company term these days. We're gonna see that come back, I think.
0: Okay, I, I still think that the hot company doesn't care if there's civil unrest in a pandemic. There's enough investors going around that that the first guy to say the word redemption is out of the deal, right? But but um, so let's move into M&A, and, and, I, and I know you got, you got another meeting you gotta run into. Um, for for M and A, usually it's either going to be an all cash deal, all stock deal, more of all stock these days probably than normal, and some kind of mix of the two. And um, there's upfront, there's upfront exit consideration, and there's earnout. Maybe talk about because 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 you've done so many deals, you've really seen what those terms that were agreed to ended up doing on what percentage of the money went to whom.
1: Well, yeah. And again, I want to stay with this theme as to what's going on now. The other thing I think you're going to see is a troubled company M&A. Like I've been doing happy M&As for many years now. We're going to see sad M&As come along <laughs> um, where, you know, we're we're not going to cover the preferences. Um, and then we got to figure out how to motivate the founders to do those deals. And the way we do that is through a carve out. And right. um, now, now stay with me here because I've seen this movie before. This is how it plays out. So, you know, the VCs, they got drag alongs. they got all these rights to sell the companies, but no buyer wants an unhappy, you know, management team. So they really need to get the CEO on board and the founders on board. So say, look, we're going to give you, oh, I don't know, eight, six or 8% right off the top to you, the management team, because the sale of this company doesn't generate enough money to cover the preferences and to pay you anything on your common. And the management team says, okay, we'll take that deal. They go do the deal and and they get rich and the VCs get their money back and maybe even a multiple, you know, depending on the terms. And then all the other common stockholders say, Well, wait a minute here, what about me? Or the That's, this right. A, That's you know? right. And then we have litigation. A lot of employees will get nothing. Employees get wiped out. Just Everybody gets washed out. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, so we need to be careful. Now, the courts have been relatively, you know, company friendly on that. They've been relatively hostile to the plaintiffs in terms of the, the dict has been great for the plaintiffs. The decisions have not been, but you need to be careful about that. Uh, I think uh, the trouble that the today, the 2020 company is going to be very good about governance they're going to do everything correctly, they're going to get the proper consent, they're going to get disinterested votes, they're going to meet. So normally in, you know, most of these companies are Delaware, normally in, in fiduciary law, you know, we have the business judgment rule that you can all stand behind, and even if your decision was wrong, a court's not going to substitute their business judgment for yours. That goes out the window when you have interested party transactions or interested directors or people, you know, with carve-out plans voting on the deal. So you want to comply with a different standard called the entire fairness standard that means you shop the deal you get bankers involved you know you 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 have really good minutes and by the way that's a real art writing minutes you think writing your books is an art writing minutes is a real art you don't (laughs) want to give so much detail that the litigators tear you apart on it but you want to have enough detail to show that you've complied with the law so um I'm not sure that's the direction you want it to go, but I think that's something people well, need to think Well, about. I think it's important
0: for people to understand. So we we say carve out. That's that's the the vernacular for a management incentive plan, right? So right. what and there's other there's other things I think people can really learn from on this too, is that imagine you're some biotech company that's raised $250 million on a 1 X liquidation preference. So that means that and the founder owns, you know. Five uh, percent of the company, probably, really. Um, but let's just pretend the founder owns 30 percent. The liquidation stack to pay off at exit to the investors is 250 million. And he's been in this deal so damn long The the uh, VCs are thinking, "Do I have to sell on the secondary market because I'm hitting my 12-year term here?" And an offer comes along to buy the company for 150 million, and the CEO hears that at some JP. Morgan Healthcare Conference. He, is he even gonna tell his investors, I can get us out of this at 150 million when the, first, the entire 150 goes back to you worthless vulture capitalist and I got nothing for myself? The, the VC wants to at least know about there's 150 million offer to get me out of this thing because I got 250 in it. So you, you almost want a management incentive plan or a carve out so that you even know about the offer The VC often has blocking rights, you know, at this point on a change of control. Um, But what I've seen on the actual implementation of a carve out management incentive plan is the two founders dragged all these employees along with them for a big ride. And then they go off, buy a new house. And these other guys are just, we just got acquired and I got fired and I got nothing. And it could be, it can be bad.
1: Oh, I, I've got war stories you wouldn't believe. I, I've got a client who is a founder of a company that exited at a $500 million sale price. $500 million and the founder got nothing out of it. Uh, that can happen. You've got to pay attention to these terms and these follow-on, you know, inside, you know, rounds because uh, people can really get screwed.
0: Well, I know I know you've got to run so uh, a final end on a very optimistic note of bankruptcy. So, <laughs> so for so administration you know abc when you hear abc that's not good when you when you hear sherwood is coming into the office that's not good what does abc mean and, and what what can you tell us about bankruptcy Robert? yeah i've been
1: using that word uh, more than i like to lately uh, as as an option a nuclear option so uh, abc is assignment for benefit of creditors it's like a state law bankruptcy um and it's a little cheaper than than actually going to federal bankruptcy courts quicker it's faster Um, but it means the same thing. You're wiping out all the unsecured creditors. You're wiping out the equity. Only the secured creditors survive uh, a a transaction like that. Now, um, the way it comes up is because, you know, we're a company, you know, we're in 2020 and and we're not doing digital health or whatever that's hot. So we're in trouble now. And uh, we got to go back and do a recap. And we got to say to all those note holders out there, Look, guys, um, you can either play ball with me and recap the company. You get com- by recap, I mean, you get common stock. You know, you give up some of your percentage of this company. We revalue it, or you know, we we do the dirty deed. We flip the switch and um, and uh, and we don't have the money to, to you know to pay a bankruptcy lawyer, but we can sure as heck do an ABC transaction. Set up a new entity. We transfer all the assets to the new entity in exchange for its fair value. We run a process so it goes at fair value. But that means we just hit the reset button. We start over and you're all wiped out. Only the secured creditors survive. That's the ABC. It's a negotiating tool as much as anything because the smart you know, investor, once they see that, they'll say, yeah, you know, 5% of something is better than 90% of nothing.
0: Right. right. And Roger, um, if people want to get a hold of you first, how early will you take on a new client? If it's two guys in a garage or when...
1: Most of them, yeah, <laughs> most of them. Yeah, no, very, very early. I, I, uh, you know, I, I talk to anybody, and, and I like to get in early because, uh, you know, and, and we can be very, uh, very efficient. I'm, we're startup friendly. Let me just put it that way.
0: Sure, sure. And uh, I'll put your email in the, in the notes, uh, what I post in the podcast and, and everything. But uh, just what's your email, and I'll overlay it on the, um, on the video too. Um, yeah. What's the best dot- way to contact you, Roger?
1: Um, well, if you Google me, don't worry, I'll come up. I'm not hiding, but roger.royce at Com.
0: Okay, fantastic. Well, Roger, we hopefully things are opening up. Maybe we can meet in an outdoor restaurant these days. That's about it. But uh, look forward to seeing you back in the real world. And thanks so much for joining okay, us. Thank you. Okay. Alrighty. Yep. Bye. bye.